Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're going to bring you the story of D.B. Cooper. And if you don't know, this is going to be a fun ride. So <laughs> buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. back to another round of bartending with Sloan. Today we're going to make a dessert martini. I'm just going to call this caramel martini and to us it tastes like one of the Werther's caramels. It was really good but very sweet. Definitely something to end on. Yes for sure. So what I did was I took 1.25 ounces of caramel vodka. We just used Smirnoff because it's good with flavor and great with the price. And then 0.75 of Bailey's or whatever Irish cream you have. We usually have Carolans or something Carolines, like that. Carolines, yeah. yeah. So shake that with ice, pour it into your martini glass if you want to be a little extra, which you know we do. We also like lined the martini glass with caramel drizzle. It was delicious. So highly recommend this for the fall season because you know we're there. It's spooky season. I'm going to say that every episode for the next month, but hope you enjoy this drink and you can find this recipe on our socials. Now we're going to kick you off to the episode. So as we said, today's case is all about D.B. Cooper, which I'm sure we have all heard the name. You may not know the whole story behind it, but you've definitely heard the name. And... As we kind of said during Sloan's episode uh, last week, <laughs> it is following 9-11. I didn't think about it at the time, but it just happened to be the one that was like, eh, let, let's do D.B. Cooper because it's kind of one of those ones that it's a fun one to do. Nobody dies in it unless you think D.B. died, but. It's just, it's one of those cases that I like to think that he lived a long, happy, healthy hooligan life. Right. It's like, it's one of those cases that it's like, it's still unsolved. We still don't know who D.B. Cooper is, but it's fun to look back and be like, yep, this is how, how crime solving went at this time. (laughs) Pretty much. So... Jumping into the details of this case, on the afternoon of November 24th, 1971, a nondescript man called himself Dan Cooper. He approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon, Oregon, if I can speak. (laughs) It's all right. We've we've both been struggling today. (laughs) Yeah. But he approached the uh, counter of this airline in Portland, Oregon. And the man appeared to be in his mid-40s and six feet tall. He was said to be quiet and wearing a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt. He was also carrying a black briefcase. 
and using cash, he brought he bought a twenty dollar ticket to like for Northwest Orient Airlines Flight three hundred five. This was taking them to the destination, which wouldn't it be nice to only have to pay twenty dollars, right? Nope. Now just to even go like. What could be maybe a two-hour drive, but you just don't feel like driving it. Costs you about two hundred dollars. So he then boarded the plane and ordered a bourbon and soda while waiting for takeoff. According to the FBI, shortly after three p.m., he handed the stewardess Florence Scheffner. I think it's how Schaefner, maybe. He handed her a note, and it's like she thought it was just from like a lonely businessman, and she just kind of like tossed it like in her purse, didn't think much of it. And that's when he kind of leaned like toward her and whispered, "Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb." <laughs> like, could you imagine? <laughs> I think of, like, Charlie's Angels when Drew Barrymore is in the plane, <laughs> yeah. dressed in as the black man, uh. and the dude leans over and he goes, I have a bomb. Yeah. But, I, like, you gotta think, this is, like, like I said, this is the 70s. You're not thinking that. Like, nowadays, like, yes, anytime you fly... Because we all grew up watching 9-11, being a part of 9-11, we're so, like, on edge anytime you fly. So, like I said, he handed her this note. She didn't really look at it. And then he was like, hey, no, you might want to look at that. So, the note was printed in neat, all capital letters with a a felt-tip pen... The note was returned to Cooper, but she, uh, the stewardess recalls it read something like, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I want you to sit by me. No, A- thank you. Right? Ain't that a man? I don't. Ain't that a man? I don't want anything to do with you right now. So, obviously, she's stunned by this, and she did what she was told. Cooper then opened his briefcase and showed her a glimpse of a mass of wires, red sticks, and a battery. So, I mean, you gotta think, unless you're sitting there in your spare time building bombs, you're not gonna look and be like, Well, that's not a bomb. You're going to be like, holy shit. (laughs) So he then demanded she write down what he told her. Once she had written down what he said, she walked to the captain with the note stating he wanted four parachutes and $200,000 in $20 bills. And... That amount of money today would be about $1.2 million. Right? (laughs) 
But you know, after taxes, it wouldn't be. <laughs> uh, so more than I have now. Uh, Cooper soon began making further demands with another flight attendant. This was 22-year-old Tina Mucklow. Cooper demanded the fuel, that fuel trucks were to meet them in Seattle, which was where the flight was going to. And everyone was to remain in their seats while Mucklow brought the money onto the plane. The passengers were told their flight to Seattle would be delayed due to uh, minor mechanical difficulties. And this was just so that the aircraft could, like, circle (laughs) the, like, pungent sound, which is, like, basically the Seattle area, for approximately two hours while police, like, police and the FBI scrambled to get the parachutes and that. Um... Mucklow was ordered to stay with Cooper, and she recalled him being familiar with the area and being kind. He stated that the area below looked like Tacoma, and like as the aircraft flew above it. And he also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only 20 minutes, like a 20 minute drive. At the time, because you gotta think, this is the 70s. It's not like how it is now, where traffic's a bitch, and it probably takes you about an hour. hmm Yeah, so it's, it stated that, like, the Air Force Base is only, like, a 20-minute drive from the airport. So, while the plane held a holding pattern over Seattle, Mucklow and Cooper made small talk. She said Cooper... Uh, she asked Cooper why he picked Northwest Airlines to hijack. They responded, it's not because I have a grudge against your airline. It's because I have a grudge. The flight landed in Seattle and he exchanged the 36 passengers on board for the money and the parachutes. And he ordered two pilots, a flight engineer, and a flight attendant to remain. And then the plane took off. And flew towards Mexico City. He had specific instructions for the plane to fly under 10,000 feet at a speed slower than 200 knots. And at around 8 p.m., well, between Seattle and Reno, some even say it was near actual, like, uh, Ariel, Washington. It's hard to know just because of, like, the speed and everything just, like, kind of also not knowing, like, the coordinates because he actually, like, left the plane while, like, everybody that was on board was in a separate area from him. So they don't know exactly when he jumped. But around 8 p.m. is when he actually lowered the rear steps and jumped with, like, the parachute and ransom money, like, to the best of their ability, as of guessing, like, when, because that's kind of when they got the notification that the stairs, like, descended. 
The pilots landed the plane safely at 11.02 p.m., but as for Cooper's fate, to this day, it's still unknown. They don't know if he survived or if he died, but the FBI uh, learned of the hijack while the plane was in flight from, like, the original starting point. And it actually produced an extensive investigation that lasted for years. It's known as the Norjack. Uh, FBI first believed that Cooper was knowledgeable of both planes and the area and possibly served in the military. They thought he could have been a paratrooper, but later ruled he was not an experienced jumper because the jump itself was ruled too dangerous. They also said he failed to notice his reserve parachute was so enclosed for used for like the use of training. In the first five years, over 800 suspects were looked into and almost all were eliminated. Before Cooper jumped out of the plane, he took off his black J.C. Penny tie which gave investigators DNA evidence, and they were able to kind of use this to basically start, like, a profile. So there isn't much to go off in this case, one, because of how they did investigations, and just kind of, like, the lack of evidence and also evidence they did have they didn't really preserve or keep so throughout the years bits and pieces of possible evidence has been found such as in november 1978 a placard printed with instructions for lowering the like stairs <laughs> was found by a deer hunter near a logging road around 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, which is well north of the lake that some people think that Cooper could have, like, jumped into and made his escape. Mm -hmm. On February 10th, 1980, an eight-year-old Brian Ingram actually <laughs> found like, um, uh, he uncovered three packets of what they were able to determine was actually some of the ransom money, which was around $5,800 in, like, the riverbank of where his family was vacationing, which was right by the Columbia River. Like, could you imagine being a little kid and finding all that money? And then, like, if you go and get your parent, and they're like, oh, I mean, I mean, we gotta turn this in, right? Right? Mm. <laughs> Surely right. we have to turn this in. <laughs> right. Oh. Yes, I would absolutely wink, wink. <laughs> so... I guess what probably made them not turn in was the fact that some of the bills had disintegrated from lengthy exposure to the elements, but they were still bundled in the rubber bands. 
FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Two packets of hundred like twenty dollar bills each. So like basically what is that? A thousand that's what was it? A hundred twenty dollar bills. So that yeah, that'd be like a thousand dollars. I think. Two thousand. Two thousand. Hundred times twenty. Yeah. Yeah, two thousand. Yeah, so like he found two packets of like two thousand dollars and a third packet of ninety twenty dollar bills. And they are all arranged in the same order as when they were given to Cooper, which means they were definitely lost in the jump. Or buried. Either way. Uh, the discovery started a new round of investigation, but raised more questions. Initial statements about the found money were founded on the assumption that the bundled bills washed freely into the Columbia River from one of its many connecting uh, tributaries. An army corp of engineers, like, basically noted that the bills had disintegrated in a rounded fashion and were matted together, indicating that they had been deposited in, like, into the river, but it opposed that they were directly buried into the river. The conclusion, if correct, supports the opinion that Cooper had not landed near Lake Merwin, I think is how it's said, or any tributary of Lewis River. It makes the possible landing zone near Worshipful River. These damn, these damn weird names. Like, why? Why can't it just be simple names where we don't have to struggle and sound like idiots? <laughs> because they're Native American names. It's the name of the land. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Okay. <laughs> they say it was possibly in the Worshipful River, which merges with the Columbia. So, the free-floating hypothesis presents difficulties such as how it, it didn't explain that 10 bills were missing from one packet. It also didn't explain how the three packets stayed together after separating from the rest of the money. The physical evidence was incompatible with geological evidence. Free-floating bundles would have had to wash up on the bank within a couple of years of the hijacking. Otherwise, the rubber bands would have long since uh, disintegrated. So. Do with that as you will. Geological evidence suggests that the bills arrived at Tina Bar, which is kind of like the area they were found in. After 1974, the year of a... Yeah, so it's saying that... They arrived at this, like, location they were found in after 1974, which is when, like, the corpse of, like, the engineers that were helping with the case 
kind of like searched this like stretch of the river. Mm-hmm. So they, if for them to be there, they either had to have been missed or they had to have been put there after. In late 2020, analysis of diatoms found on the bills suggested that the bundles found at Tinabar were not submerged in the river or buried dry at the time of the hijacking in November 1971. So again, they were everything points to them being put there after the jump. Uh, the type of diatoms found suggests that the money entered the water at least several months after the hijacking. In late 2007, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from a sample found on Cooper's tie in 2001. They later said that there is no evidence that the hijacker is the source of these samples. They also say that the samples were too small on the tie for, like... Alright, so yeah. They said that there's no evidence that the hijacker was, like, the one that produced these samples because the samples were too small on the tie and there was, like, one larger one, but they still have no way of proving that it's from D.B. Cooper. The borough made public a file of previously unreleased evidence, including Cooper's 1971 plane ticket, and posted previously unreleased composite sketches and fact sheets, along with a request to the general public for information which might lead to Cooper's positive identification. Throughout the years, there has been discrepancy regarding the sketches used in the case. The first composites that were released uh, became jokingly known as the Bing Crosby sketch because of kind of the rendering. <laughs> Which, if you look and you kind of look at D- like Bing Crosby, yes, they they look very similar. Uh, Multiple witnesses also complained that Composite B showed a man who was a bit older than Cooper and also that he has the complexion which was still too light. So taking these suggestions, they conducted another sketch which is the revised Composite B which is the, like, finalized one that they ended up using. And one flight attendant stated that it was an excellent likeness and that the hijacker would be easily recognized from this sketch. The two flight attendants that spent the most time with Cooper were interviewed and gave nearly identical descriptions of Cooper. He was said to be around 5 foot 10 inches, He was in his mid-40s, had short black hair that was combed back. He weighed about 170 to 180 pounds. He was kind of like an olive skin tone. So, 
trying to think, like, Mediterranean, I guess, is the best, like, ethnicity that I can think of that usually has, like, that olive sort of skin tone to them. They're not super tan, but they're also not. Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Yes, yes. Uh, what's his name? Kus- uh, I want to say Cusco, but no, that's 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 <laughs> that's a- <laughs> No, but that's who. That's yeah. exactly who I'm envisioning. Lena's love interest. Yes. yes, him. I also said he didn't have a discernible accent. The only person to recall his eye color was uh, Schaffner, who described them as being brown. So, now that we kind of have that, let's get into the many... Coscos. That's how it is. I was like, yes. I was like, it's something with a K. It is something with a K. Coscos. Yes. (sighs) Anyways... So, let's get into some of the suspects that they brought up for this case. And the first one is Theodore Ted uh, Burdett Barden Jr. And he was born in 1928 and died in 2007. Ted was a special forces commando during the Vietnam War, a master skydiver, and a convicted felon. Many in the Special Forces thought he was Cooper, both during the time of the hijacking and the following years. Ted was born in Ohio and joined the military at the age of 16 in 1944, and he served with the 101st yeah, 101st Airborne during World War II. He went on to become one of the military's leading parachutists and even represented the Army in, in yeah, international skydiving tournaments. He was listed as making 911 jumps with the military. He spent 23 months in Vietnam conducting classified operations within both North and South Vietnam, as long as well as Laos and Cambodia. December 1966, Barden deserted his unit in Vietnam and made his way to the Congo to serve as a mercenary but would only serve there for a short time before being arrested by CIA agents and taken back to the States for court-martial. Braden was given an honorable discharge and barred from re-enlisting in the military in exchange for his continued secrecy about... I'm not sure how you say this program, but it was like a very, like, top-secret secret program um it's a classified commando unit of green berets which conducted unconventional warfare operations during the vietnam war 
So Barden was described by a fellow Special Forces veteran as having a secret death wish and continuously putting himself in unnecessary danger, but always getting away with it. The same veteran said that while in Vietnam, Ted was involved in shady mon- money-making <laughs> deals. So, I mean, he seems like a kind of good first suspect. At the time of the hijacking, he was a truck driver for Consolidated Freightways, which was headquartered in Vancouver, Washington, just across the Columbia River from Portland, and not far from the suspected drop zone of Ariel, Washington. At some point in the early 1970s, he was investigated by the FBI for stealing $250,000 during a trucking scam that he had allegedly devised but would never be formally charged for this supposed crime. In 1980, Barden was indicted by federal grand jury for driving an 18-wheeler full of stolen goods from Arizona to Massachusetts, but it was um sorry, but it is unknown whether there was a conviction in that case. Two years later, Barden would be arrested in Pennsylvania for driving a stolen vehicle with fictitious plates and for having no driver's license. Sometime during the 1980s, he was sent to federal prison serving time in Pennsylvania, but for the cr- what crime, we don't know. Despite his ability as a soldier, he was not well-liked personally and was described by a family member as the perfect combination of high intelligence and criminality. Uh, his military records list him as 5'8", which is shorter than what Cooper is listed as, and his measurements would have been taken without shoes, so, I mean, he could have appealed, appeared taller with shoes, you don't know. He was also of dark complexion due to years of outdoor military service. He also has short dark hair, a medium athletic build, and was 43 at the time of the hijacking, which kind of all match Cooper's description. The next next suspect that I kind of want to talk about is Lynn Doyle Cooper, also known as Lynn Doyle L.D. Cooper. So... Just change up the initials a little bit and you got the same name. And he was alive from 1931 to 1999. He was a leather worker and Korean War veteran. And was proposed as a suspect in July of 2011. So well after his death. And he was kind of brought up by as a possible suspect by his niece. Um, She said when she was eight, she recalled Lynn and another uncle planning something mischievous involving expensive walkie-talkies in Sisters, Oregon, which is about 150 miles from Portland. The next day, Flight 305 was hijacked, and though 
The uncles basically said they were turkey hunting at the time. L.D. Cooper came home wearing a bloody shirt with which he said was the result of an auto accident. She said her parents later thought he was also the hijacker. She also recalled her uncle being a fan of the Canadian comic book hero, Dan Cooper, and had one of his comic books thumbtacked to his wall, although he was not a skydiver or a paratrooper. He was eventually ruled out when his DNA didn't match the partial that they had from the hijacker's tie. Which, again, we still don't know if any DNA on that is from the hijacker. Next is one of the only females, and that is Barbara Dayton, who was born in 1926 and died in 2002. And... She was a recreational pilot and University of Washington librarian who was actually born Robert Dayton. So, it's kind of your first, like, transgender, but, you know, we don't, we don't talk about that stuff. This is all clearly recent stuff that we deal with. No, not in any time period was this ever in occurrence ever. It wasn't like we forced men to act as women on stage as, in Shakespearean times. Right? Women were not allowed to act. But... God. It's... Uh, our, our country is fucked up. <laughs> Clearly. Um... Where was I at? There I am. I was like, Barbara, where did I leave off with Barbara? So yes, she was actually born Robert Dayton and served in the U.S. Merchant Marine and then the Army during World War II. After discharge, Dayton worked with explosives in the construction field and aspired to be a professional airline like career, but could not obtain a commercial pilot's license. Dayton underwent gender reassignment surgery in 1969 and changed her name to Barbara. She was believed to be the first person to undergo this surgery in the Washington state. She claimed to have staged the Cooper hijacking two years later, presenting as a man in order to get back at the airline industry and the FAA, whose insurmountable rules and conditions had prevented her from becoming an airline pilot. I mean, they do say it's nothing like a woman scorned, so I mean... There is the one guy on TikTok that's like, lessons and not crossing a gay man. <laughs> she said the ransom money was hidden in a cistern near Wood Woodburn, Oregon. I think it's cistern. I don't know. It's like one of those underground, like, I can't think of the, what I'm trying to say. But, like, it's one of those, like, underground, basically, like, in a church, it'd be like a worship area. 
I don't know. I'm from the south, and we don't have a lot of underground areas. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, she later recanted her story when she learned hijacking charges could still be brought upon her. So, uh, her physical description also didn't match, and the FBI never commented on Barbara. So. I don't think anybody ever really thought of her as a good suspect anyways. Um, next is Joe Wackrich. I don't know. Uh, he was born in 1921 and died in 2017. He was a retired U.S. Army major and Korean War veteran whose daughter was killed Less than two months before the hijacking during the failed FBI hostage, hostage negotiation. The death of his daughter, Susan Griff, I think is how it's said, would be studied by hostage uh, negotiations for decades as an example of what not to do during hostage situations. So if that doesn't give you something to have a grudge over... Uh, Joe and his wife would go on to sue the FBI and win their case, stating the FBI acted negligently during the hostage negotiation. He would become a Cooper suspect when it was discovered that the tie contained rare microscopic metallic particles such as pure titanium. They said these could be a result of Cooper working in a manufacturing environment, working on electronics as engineer or manager. When the hijacking occurred, he was working in Nashville as a production supervisor at an electronics capacitor factory, I think is how... Uh, he would have likely been exposed to the materials that were found on the tie. And remember how Cooper was asked why he was committing the crime? Well, Tina said that Cooper said that he had a grudge, but not against the airlines, but he did have a grudge. So again, the FBI basically botched his daughter's situation and got her killed. So, yeah. So, like, that's kind of, like, where they are with him. He's not confirmed or denied as a suspect, but he, he's good. He's a good one, in my opinion. Uh, as I said in my last episode I did, you have John List, who was suspected. And this was because that when he went... Missing, it kind of fell right along this time frame. So, I mean, you got a man that just killed his family. So what does he have to lose? Nothing. Exactly. Um, there's no evidence implicating him. And he denied that he was involved. And the FBI does not list him as a suspect anymore. But, I mean, like I said... He's got some, some good, he's got as much of like an, a motive as just about anybody. He was eliminated as a suspect, partly because he didn't match the description provided 
by the two flight attendants. He was also said to have been in Las Vegas at the time of the hijacking. And then at home in Utah. And having Thanksgiving with his family. So, I mean... Maybe. I could keep going on with suspects, but we'd just be here all day. Um, basically, one of the prime suspects, according to the FBI, is Richard Floyd McCoy. He was arrested for a similar crime months later. However, he was eliminated as a suspect, partly because he didn't match the description provided. I completely, like... I skipped ahead in the John John List thing. I was like, he just, yeah. So we're going to back up. So yeah, John List was kind of like not looked as, as a possible suspect just due to the, like a bunch of different things. And then you have this Richard Floyd McCoy, who is, was listed as like a prime suspect for a while because of him having similar uh, like, committed a similar kind of crime, but he didn't match descriptions and stuff, so he was ruled out. So, following the D.B. Cooper hijacking, 32, um, basically similar crimes were committed in 1972, and 19 were basically for extorting money. In early 1973, the FAA began requiring airlines to search all passengers and their bags amid multiple lawsuits charging the, like, that such searches violated their Fourth Amendment. Uh, yeah. Protections against search and seizure. Federal courts actually had to, like, step in and say, no, this was legal as long as it applied to everyone. So that is why we now have, you know, your good old TSA agents. Because somebody had to complain, so, yeah. Federal courts also said that the searches were legal as long as they applied to everyone, and they limited the search for, like, weapons and explosives. Which I find funny because in my carry-on, I always usually have, like, a book or something to read. And there's the one time, <laughs> I forget what book I had, but it was it was one of my smutty books. And they were like, you need to check that bag. And the, like, TSA agent's, like, going through. And she's like, I don't... And she picks up the book and she goes... She's, like, flipping through and she sees, like, the little security-like thing that they throw in some mm -hmm. books. And she's like... This is the only thing I could think. So she like throws it in the thing and it's like negative. She goes, you're good. I'm like, at least you're a woman. Because some man would have been like, what is this? <laughs> well, I was just like, I promise you, I'm not trying to blow up a plane. <laughs> so only two hijackings were attempted in 1973, both by psychiatric patients one hijacker, Samuel Buick, Buick? I don't know, B-Y-C-K, so you, you do with that what you will, <laughs> intended to crash the airliner into the White House to kill President Nixon. 
There were also modifications made to planes following the hijacking, which basically ordered that a spring-loaded device, later dubbed the Cooper Vane, be fitted to all planes. The Cooper Vane basically prevented the lowering of the aircraft stairs during flight. Also, it was mandated that peepholes be installed into cockpit doors. Um, an interesting side note is that the owner of the skydiving school that lended the parachutes during the hijacking was found dead in his home. His death was ruled a homicide, and some believe it's related to the Cooper case, but authorities believe that it's a result of a burglary. The FBI continues to receive tips, but they closed the investigations um, in 2016, stating that resources could be used in other cases. The case remains unsolved and has become the suspect, the suspect, the subject, <laughs> has become the subject of stories, heroes, songs, books, and movies. So, like, one of my favorite things is always being, like, anytime, like, D.B. Cooper gets brought up, it's being like, so, who do you think D.B. Cooper is, and do you think he's alive and well, or... Do you think he's dead? Do you think we'll ever know? And unless it gets solved anytime soon, I don't think we'll ever catch him alive. A lot of time has passed. But if something ever did come through that would give us a better, I don't know, evidence-wise, I think we could definitely find him. But like I said, this is, I mean, this is from the, what? 70s, 50s, something. It's, when did I say this took place? Yeah, 71. So, I mean, you gotta figure if they're saying he was in his 40s, we're, we're definitely at the end of his, like, time. So, I don't know. I always love this case, like I said, because it, it gets people talking and you have the people that think he survived and he, like, ran away. And then you have the ones that are like, nah, he died. But then again, then what happened to him? You really think we wouldn't, like, have found something of him? Right. So. That is my case. I wanted to do kind of like a lighthearted one. Like I said, this is one that, like, I didn't even think about the fact that it was 9-11, but I was like, let's do a fun little case where, like, no one dies unless you think Cooper died. <laughs> Get away from all the, uh, death that is true crime. Right. But, that being said, we will kick you off to our last call. Welcome back to another last call with Sloan. So, uh, I'm pretty sure I've talked on here recently about how badly I want to see the Elvis movie. And it finally hit HBO Max. I know. I was going to watch it the other day. And I was like, no, I'll wait and see. If you watch watched it. it without me. I did not. I would be so upset. I said, if. I if like, you did. I, I was would like, I'll wait for Sloan. So <laughs> upset. But on that note, I, I did already it. watch it. <laughs> 
but I will watch it again. But I say that I would be so upset because I have been begging these bitches to take me to the movie theater to see it. I begged my husband. I begged Trish. I begged Logan. I begged everybody. I was about to go by my damn self because HBO, like, the reason... The reason HBO gets these theatrical releases is because of the pandemic. And now that we are slowly like coming back to our normalcy outside of the pandemic, it's this big thing. It's a between the like Netflix and Hulu and HBO and like it's still being in the movie theater. So, you know, they clearly still want to make money off the movie theater, but they had already promised that Elvis would be on HBO Max at the beginning of August. So like it's been this big thing, but Elvis is still out in theaters, and it's on HBO Max, so I finally got to watch it on HBO Max. I loved it. I love Elvis. I have grown up loving Elvis. I, like, I grew up in Mississippi. He's from Tupelo. He's actually, like, he was in my great aunt's elementary class. There's a picture of their elementary class with my great aunt and Elvis in it. In his Tupelo house, if you tore it, she's the one with the Princess Leia buns in the first or second row. I can't remember. But, like, just just to say, I feel a very strong connection and love with Elvis. And that's why I wanted to go to the theaters and see it. But I finally saw it. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. My one complaint is I feel like the movie moves way too fast. But also, like, how do you fit Elvis's whole life and career into an hour and a half, two and a half hour movie? You can't. Yeah. You can't. So I can't be mad that it moves fast. It was a great movie. But now let's talk about Elvis. Did you know that Elvis was a twin? I mean, I knew that because I'm an Elvis buff. Oh, so you're an Elvis buff. I was like, mm-hmm. But yes. On January 8th, 1935, Elvis Aaron Presley was born at his parents' two-room house in East Tupelo, Mississippi, and his identical twin brother, Jesse Guerin, who was stillborn. The next day, Jesse was buried in an unmarked grave in nearby Priceville Cemetery. Elvis, who spoke of his twin throughout his life, grew up as an only child in a poor family. His father, Vernon, worked a series of odd jobs and in 1938 was sentenced to three years in prison for forging a $4 check. He spent less than a year behind bars, though. In 1948, the Presleys moved from Tupelo to Memphis in search of better opportunities. There, Elvis attended Humes High School, where he failed a music class and was considered quiet and an outsider. He graduated in 1953, becoming the first member of his immediate family to earn a high school diploma. So, like, we love him. After graduation, he worked at a machinist shop and drove a truck before launching his music career with the July 1954 recording of That's All Right. Well, that's all right, baby. That's all right. (laughs) I love it. Two. Elvis brought Graceland when he was 22 years old. Like this boy who grew up dirt fucking poor. And I remember my grandmother telling me this story about whenever he was in elementary school with my great aunt, they were giving out teacher's gifts at the end of the year and he was very poor. So his teacher's gift was to sing a song to the teacher and the whole class made fun of him. Meanwhile, you're sitting there going, (gasps) The whole class made fun of him. So all of this to say, whenever people make fun of you, 
it's because of their own goddamn insecurities. And I I apologize for the language right there. I know I cuss a lot, but mm. like that's a specific word. That... That's why we put explicit on this. <laughs> but also like when people bring you down, it's because they want to bring you down to their level. These children made fun of Elvis Presley for singing and look at what he turned out to be. Mm-hmm. So Elvis, the dirt poor child, bought Graceland when he was 22 years old, which is still a standing mansion. If you ever go to Memphis, I highly recommend doing the tour. You don't even have to do the whole, like, the whole exhibits. Forget the cars and the planes and all that. Just pay to go see Graceland. It is well worth it, in my opinion. Me being the ghost hunter I am, I believe that Ghost Hunters has gone and said that there is some uh, activity there, so... Elvis could haunt me any day. <laughs> any day. Come sing in my ear. Well, that's all right, baby. <laughs> well, baby, let me be your loving teddy bear. Oh, my gosh. I would like to say that my Elvis love start started with Full House. But it probably started before then. But there's just so much Elvis in Full Uncle House. Jesse. Exactly. Number three, Elvis, Elvis's controversial manager, Colonel Tom Parker, was a former carnival barker. So if you've seen the movie, you know this. It's like the very beginning of the movie. I honestly did not know that part until I watched the movie. So that was an interesting thing to learn for me. Four, Elvis served in the army after he was already famous. Once again, this is a part of the movie plot line. So if you watch the movie, I'm just wasting your time. But pretty much like he started becoming famous and a big problem with Elvis back in the day is that he very much paid homage to black people and black singers and whatnot. But that was a big problem for the white yeah, audience. That's the best way of putting it. The white audience, especially the white men in power really did not like that. Elvis was what's the word? Not segregating. Like, unsegregating? Yeah, but what's he was the word? basically, like, appropriating, like, black culture. Yes. And white power did not like that back in the day. And so he started going down real fast downhill in the public eye. And the evil colonel was like, hey, we're going to put you in the army. And then I'm going to bring you back and make you better than ever. And so that's what he did. He went to the army. And then that's whenever he came back. And he... Uh, that's whenever he started his full-on acting career. Like, he tried to stop the singing career and just went to full-on acting. Thank goodness that did not hold true. <laughs> Five, Elvis never performed outside of North America. Six, Elvis was burned in an effigy after an appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. And so, this is another part that was in the movie. But, like, they really just made him look like an idiot. Like, a southern idiot. So... Whereas his manager was trying to make him look good for the nation, he came back home and the South was like, they just made you look like the typical Southern bastard. Like, dumb ass. And they did. They did. It's just amazing to me, like, looking back after all these years, how big of an influence Elvis had on everybody and our culture and everything. And the entire time that he was here for us and producing and, like, performing... Everybody just tried to bring him down. Yeah. And my last fun fact for today is that Elvis bought FDR's presidential yacht. (laughs) 
1964, Elvis paid $55,000 for the 160-foot long vessel that served as FDR's floating White House from 1936 to 1945. So, he had a nice little fun ride, a nice little boat, a nice house, a nice life, and it all went down the shitter. Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> but, anyways, I could really go on for Elvis for a really, about Elvis for a really long time, so I didn't want to, like, go into too much detail because this was pretty much like a list about the movie and i just feel like you should go watch the movie and if you don't know about elvis learn about elvis he's a cultural icon for a reason but you don't have to try that banana peanut butter bull crap <laughs> you don't have to if you want to do you boo just because you don't like you don't like banana that's why I'm saying you don't have to do everything Elvis did, but he was a pretty great fella, and I am thankful for his influence in my life and our culture and our country. And rock on, dude. <laughs> I hope you're living somewhere with Tupac and Biggie. I was gonna say, are you one of the ones that think Elvis is still alive today, or you think he's gone well, on? Well, well, well. <laughs> Let me put on my tinfoil hat. There are some people that truly believe that Elvis did not die on the toilet because his tombstone at Graceland has his name misspelled. And nobody in all of this time has bothered to fix it. Even with all of the money that they have. Yeah, yeah. Nobody has fixed the tombstone. Now, granted, they just put an extra A in the middle name. So, like, really doesn't matter that much. Not really. But also, if it's Elvis motherfucking Presley, don't you think the tombstone would have been made correctly? I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm just saying. A lot of you get married by an Elvis and a chapel in Las Vegas and you think it's a fake. But what if it's the real one? (laughs) I'd piss myself. Nate, we're going to Vegas. <laughs> oh, Lord. I'm just kidding. I like to be ridiculous sometimes, and I like to, like, play what ifs. But, no, I, I do think that Elvis passed away. It's unfortunate that we lost such a great star, but also, like, the end of his life was not as great. I mean, really, he struggled yeah. his whole life. But, Yeah. That is my last call for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can catch us on our socials. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. They are all Tequila She Wrote across the board. We have our email. It's tequilashewrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up for as little as $2 a month. You get every episode. You also get a bonus episode. Easiest way to find us there is by going to patreon.com backslash tequilashewrote. Or you can go to our socials, find our link tree, and you'll go there, click our Patreon button, and it should take you directly to our page. If you have any questions, just reach out. We'll try to help direct you there as best as we can. And if you, like I said, $2 a month, you get ad-free episodes, and you get a little bonus episode, and if you pay a little bit more, you get some even more bonus content. You got, like, a Rooney in Paradise, a Haunted episode, all that fun stuff, so. Thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. Beep. <laughs>